You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Our reading this morning comes from Nature by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is often comes to us a couple centuries later with words that sound quite modern. Our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers of the fathers. It writes biographies, histories, and criticism. The foregoing generations beheld God and nature face to face. We, through their eyes, why should not we also enjoy an original relation to the universe? Why should not we have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition, and a religion by revelation to us and not the history of theirs? Embosomed for a season in nature, whose floods of life stream around and through us, and invite us by the powers they supply to action proportioned to nature. Why should we grope among the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of its faded wardrobe? The sun shines today also. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new men and women, new thoughts. Let us demand our own works and laws and worship. <clears throat> On a cold New England morning in March of 1832, Ralph Waldo Emerson visited a grave in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Every day, he would walk the five miles to this grave from his home in Boston. Just a year earlier, just over a year earlier, his first wife, Ellen Louisa Tucker Emerson, died from tuberculosis after only 18 months of marriage. She was 19 years old. Her final words were, I have not forgot the peace and joy. So bereft was Emerson, he visited her grave daily. On that particular morning in March 1832, after getting home, he wrote one short line in his journal. I visited Ellen's tomb and opened the coffin. Emerson never said why he did it. He never shared his experience with anyone. He never documented or told anyone that we know about what motivated him to do this. All we can do is guess. He had written before that in life he had a powerful craving for direct, personal, unmediated experience. That seems like the best theory for his motivation. His values motivated him to do this. Everything else is pure speculation, with one historian even suggesting Emerson thought his late wife was a vampire. But let's be clear, none of his writings suggest anything of the sort. I believe he wanted that direct experience of death. 
Because after he opened that coffin, his entire life changed. That same year, he quit the Unitarian ministry, giving up his role as the minister of the prestigious Second Unitarian Church in Boston. Now, his stated reason for leaving the ministry was that he could not, in good conscience, preside at Christian communion services anymore. At that point in our history, Unitarians were still very much Protestant Christian. The real reasons why he left the ministry go deeper than that. In his journal, he wrote shortly before resigning, I have sometimes thought that in order to be a good minister, it was necessary to leave the ministry. The profession is antiquated. We worship in the dead forms of our forefathers. He later declared that the Unitarianism of his time was corpse cold. Having given up the ministry, he set sail for Europe and came back an entirely changed man. He would move home to Concord, Massachusetts and start gathering like-minded thinkers in his inner circle. Louisa May and Bronson Alcott, Alcott, Margaret Fuller, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau. They would form the early transcendentalist movement, though Emerson preferred to call it the idealist movement. But the former name stuck. The graduating class of Harvard Divinity School in 1838, a small class of just eight students, selected Emerson to preach to them. He delivered his now famous Harvard Divinity School address, where he critiqued the leading Unitarian establishment of the day and told the students that the test of the true faith should be its power to charm and command the soul. Faith should blend with the light of rising and setting suns, the singing bird and breath of flowers. But now the priest's Sabbath has lost the splendor of nature. It is unlovely. We are glad when it's done. We shrink as soon as the prayers begin, which do not uplift, but smite and offend us. I was with his colleagues in the room too. Thankfully, there are no prayers here that smite or offend. And I believe the splendor of nature is increasingly a part of the fabric of this community. But doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound like so many of the stories we tell here of where we come from, how we landed here? Those of you who came into Unitarian Universalism from somewhere else, more often than not, you left because there was a whole lot of smiting. No uplift, no loveliness offered to this one life we now have. Emerson also admonished the students to refuse the good models, cast conformity behind you, and acquaint persons at first hand with deity. Emerson would go on to reject miracles. He redefined the concept of soul, meaning instead that inner part of us that connects with nature and spirituality without a text or a teacher. He denied the literal resurrection and instead said that just as Jesus of Nazareth has a divine spark, so do we. The Unitarian establishment of the time accused Emerson of little by little making Unitarianism less Christian. The students, new ministers, and ensuing generations loved everything he had to say. His divinity school address also helped him launch his career even further as an orator and writer. Suddenly, his congregation was not just Second Church Boston. It was the entire country. One has to wonder 
If the religious fervor of fundamentalism never took hold, where would we be as a country philosophically? I do wonder if we'd be more Emersonian. Two years before he gave that address to Harvard, he wrote his first book titled Nature. It was anonymously published and had a 500 copy run that took six years to sell out. Within that book is the heart of Emerson's thought. It contains the critiques of stale religion, the critiques of orthodoxy, and the homegrown philosophy he espoused. Woven within it is Eastern thought, having read the Bhagavad Gita and other Eastern scriptures when they're first published in English, German, or French. One of the most recited passages goes like this. You may find it familiar. In the woods is perpetual youth. Within these plantations of God, a decorum and sanctity reign, a perennial, perennial festival is dressed, and the guest sees not how he should tire of them in a thousand years. In the woods, we return to reason and faith. There, I feel nothing can befall me in life, no disgrace, no calamity, which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. Hmm. I am the lover of uncontained and immortal beauty. We could keep going. <laughs> In many ways, nature, the book, is an expression of what could be called an American Dharma, a system of thought that rejects dualism in favor of non-dual spirituality. Dualism is this idea that there's the spirit and matter, two separate things, or human beings and nature, two separate things, God and creation, separate, life and death, separate, and so on and so forth. Non-dualism says there's oneness, no separation between us and the universe, none whatsoever. Knowing that and lifting that up and knowing the history of influence of Eastern thought on Emerson, it helps illuminate everything that he taught. And for me, it makes me think the transcendentalists were ahead of their time. But as you heard earlier, the book Nature begins with a lovely but also biting reflection. Our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers, the tombs of the fathers. The forgoing generations beheld God and nature face to face. We, through their eyes, why should we not also enjoy an original relation to the universe? Why should we not have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition and a religion of revelation to us and not a history of theirs? Why should we grope among the dry bones of the past? Let us demand our own works and laws and worship. I used to carry a copy of nature in my back pocket from my teen years to college and seminary. I was real popular. <laughs> I would read it often. And there was a time I could recite large sections of it. In those opening lines of nature are everything we need to begin a journey of reclaiming spirituality for ourselves, of discerning if religion and spirituality are stale, or as Emerson put it, corpse cold, and inspire us to forge a new path. In those lines are questions that are as relevant today as they were when they were first written. 
Do we, as a culture, still build the sepulchers of the fathers and mothers? Do we behold spirituality through eyes other than our own? Do we grope among the dry bones of the past? Do we live in a retrospective age? Answer that for yourself. I know my answer is usually yes. It makes me grateful I'm a Unitarian Universalist. I'm grateful for people like Emerson who challenged the establishment of the time. Though he left the ministry, ensuing generations of ministers, women and men inspired by him continually reshaped the Unitarian faith of the time. Many of those ministers were chased out of Boston, some by violent threats. They in turn planted churches and societies in what was then the Wild West, in Chicago, Minneapolis, across Iowa and Wisconsin, Kansas, and even further west. And yes, here in Kentucky, in Louisville too. They kickstarted radical changes in Unitarianism that led to this moment right here, where we give thanks for our Christian roots, but recognize we are more than that. We encompass a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, wherever it may lead us together. Emerson is but one example, but you don't have to look hard to our history to find Unitarians and Universalists that changed the course of their religion for the better. They dared to adapt, to grow, to change. They dared to ask, are we holding on to the dry bones of the past? And if they were, they let go. Now, there's something important to lift up in both of these Emerson texts, the Divinity School Address and the book Nature. He was not speaking directly to the establishment in that moment, an establishment that did not want to adapt or change. He was speaking to people who felt the way he felt and to the next generation. He was saying, without a doubt, do not let tradition become an idolatry of the mind and spirit. Lead with courage, lead with conviction, lead without fear, for you are expressing your truths today in this moment, not the truths of someone else from the past. Now, as Unitarian Universalists, we're in the midst of a huge potential change. Where a new generation of leaders, a new generation of Unitarian Universalists are asking us to consider how we will express our faith, our values in the days to come. We're in the midst of exploring how our principles, our values might get a refresh after 38 years in their current form. Now, we don't have an Emerson making that call to a graduating class of eight Divinity School students. But just remember, eight divinity school students ignited the Unitarian faith. Instead, we have over 85% of our congregational delegates who were present at our recent General Assembly, which is our annual nationwide gathering of Unitarian Universalists, voting in favor of this change, over 85%. In Emerson's time, just as our own, there were those who left the pews over changes. In Emerson's time, I would say that the shifts that were happening were far more radical than what we are experiencing now. But there were also those who stayed. There were those who stayed and still had their reservations, or maybe they were fears, maybe they were uncertainties, resistance, disagreements, all of the above, or something I didn't even name. 
And we may never know how those who stayed but disagreed ultimately felt in the end. In that time, it was Unitarianism becoming less and less Christian. But as that unfolded, Unitarianism essentially became transcendentalism in a church. But we don't know how they felt. But here's what we do know. We know that Unitarianism took stronger and stronger anti-slavery stances because of those changes in theology and practice. We know ministers and members were instrumental in helping slaves escape to freedom. Again, against the backdrop of the eventual civil war, those stances and that work mattered. We know that when Boston Unitarian establishment chased out the radical ministers to the West, they created what was called the Western Unitarian Conference, what became an incubator of free thinking, humanism, and religion free from orthodoxy. And it all eventually came home to roost in New England. We know that the Unitarian Universalism we enjoy today was birthed in Emerson's descent, just as it was birthed in the resistance of Transylvanian Unitarians under Catholic oppression. Just as it was birthed in the fires of the martyrs persecuted by Calvin, all the way up to the Unitarians who resisted and survived and endured and suffered in World War II. To the Unitarian Universalist youth in the 1930s who dreamed of a united religious tradition. To those youth, now adults, who made it a reality in the 1960s. To the courage of our ministers during the Civil Rights Movement. To today to Black Lives Matter, to declaring LGBTQ lives as sacred and whole, to what is yet to come, and so much I left out. There were those as transcendentalism swept the Unitarian movement who said it would be the end of Unitarianism. Even earlier when the American Puritan churches were overcome with the Unitarian heresy, there were those who said it would be the end too. In 1961, when the Unitarians and Universalists merged together, there are those who said it was all over. In 1985, when our current principles were adopted, yes, there were those who said Unitarian Universalism is dying. And today, when we look at adopting our values for a new era, indeed, there are those who are saying the end is nigh. But for those who stayed and disagreed, knowing where the changes in our faith have led us, it's an interesting thing. That is a luxury we have. We can disagree with preachers, churches, boards, decisions, choices, theologies, and we're free to stay. Our ministers don't just have freedom of the pulpit, but you have freedom of the pew. Our small expression of democracy in our congregations does not demonize dissent. It invites dissent and a thoughtful kind and reasonable discourse, and we still join as one community. Knowing that I don't believe the same as probably half of you in this room. A retrospective age and a retrospective attitude is not one that appreciates and honors the past. It's one that holds on for dear life. There's a difference there. As we look toward what is unfolding with these updated values, they're headed our way. We can honor what we love about our current principles. We can carry that with us. No one can take that away from you at all. But our tradition was not made to be held onto for dear life. 
It was not made to be corpse cold. It's a living tradition that adapts with living beings in our midst. And this is where we are being asked to go with curiosity. Now, what our history teaches us is that what we thought was at our core has changed time and time again. Serving communion, believing in a literal resurrection, views of the afterlife, ideas about God, changed. Any statement of purpose, any list of values, any stance on the issues of our times, ever changing. And I've been preaching this a lot. There is a core to who we are as Unitarian Universalists that is indelible. It's right here. That's right here. It's deeply personal, but also celebrates those cornerstones of freedom, reason, and tolerance. The free and responsible search for truth and meaning, affirming worth and dignity, our connection to this vast and wondrous universe. Everything else is just a wave in the ocean. Should not we have an original relation to Unitarian Universalism, a faith community of continual insight and not just tradition? As Emerson spoke of the blithe air bathing him in the forest, dissolving his ego and connecting him with the present moment, that same blithe air can fill our lungs in this moment too. New truths, new expressions, new wisdom, new insight is ours continually. If you remember a few weeks ago, one of the five smooth stones of Unitarian Universalism is that revelation is never sealed. That includes our principles. The sun shines today also. Blessed be. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.